0: NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The Super Bowl is tonight. We've got fans telling us who they think will end up on top. The president usually gives an interview before the big game, but not this time. Find out why. And the U.S. is facing big challenges with China and Russia. We take a look at the stakes. Plus, James Alexander of the legendary funk band The Bar-Kays talks about the 50th anniversary of the concert documentary What Stacks.
1: I had butterflies. The Bar-Kays, like many others, had never played for an audience that big.
0: It's Sunday, February 12th. News is next.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. A death toll in Turkey and Syria from last Monday's earthquakes now tops 28,000. NPR's Jason Bobian is in the Turkish city of Gaziantep. He reports that aftershocks continue in the region and frustration is growing over the relief and
3: rescue response. Turkey has been hit with more than 2,000 aftershocks, some mild, some jolting since last week's major earthquakes. This as millions of Turks worked to recover from the disaster. In northern Syria, aid groups say as many as 5 million people may have lost their homes. Search and rescue efforts in Syria have officially ended. Yet in Turkey, rescue teams continued to find some survivors. Early on Sunday, a baby and a man in his 20s were pulled alive from the rubble. But with hundreds of thousands of people now living in tents or in their cars, there are growing calls for more aid. The Turkish government, in response, has ordered all universities closed, at least until this summer, so that college dormitories can be used as temporary housing for the displaced. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Gaziantep. Turkey. As
2: Turkey's president faces questions about the government's response, officials have begun detaining or have issued arrest warrants for at least 113 people allegedly involved in the construction of buildings that collapsed. U.S. fighter jets have now taken out three flying objects in the airspace over North America. The latest yesterday when U.S. and Canadian fighter jets were scrambled to shoot down an unidentified object flying over Canada in the Yukon. Canadian Defense Minister Anita Annan says this latest object was first spotted Friday evening. When we first
4: started tracking uh, this object, it was uh, dark. And we needed to make sure that we had a visual of it and so needed to wait for daylight to emerge.
2: Canada's Prime Minister says Canadian forces will recover and analyze the wreckage. This latest shootdown came a day after an unknown object was brought down off Alaska's North Slope and nearly a week after a suspected Chinese spy balloon was shot down off the coast of South Carolina. The entire city of Flint, Michigan, remains under a boil water advisory. Clinton Keinfelter of member station WDET reports.
5: Flint officials say on the city's website roughly 15 feet of pipe split by a main last Friday causing pressure to drop throughout its water system. They don't yet know why, but officials want people in Flint to only use bottled or boiled water until they fix the break, flush the mains, and test the system for harmful bacteria. Flint residents are well aware of the consequences from using tainted water. In 2014, the city switched to a different water source but did not properly treat pipes for corrosion. That allowed cancer-causing lead contamination to leach into the drinking supply. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit.
2: And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Board of Trustees for St. Joseph Prep Boston is closing the Coed Catholic high school at the end of this school year. The board says it is facing insurmountable financial pressures. The school in Brighton was formed 10 years ago via the merger of two smaller schools established in the late 1800s that had been among the oldest Catholic high schools in greater Boston. The owner of Brockton Hospital is not announcing a timetable for reopening. The facility has been closed since last week's electrical fire forced the evacuation. Of patients. All emergency services, elective procedures, and medical visits are canceled at Brockton Hospital until further notice. In that lyric little bandbox known as Fenway Park, a groundskeeper has made an unusual discovery. Last week, the worker dug up a glass bottle estimated to be older than the oldest ballpark in Major League Baseball. A Red Sox spokesperson says that type of bottle was last produced in 1910. The park opened in 1912. Workers were renovating the field when they came across the antique. It's 36 degrees in Boston, sunshine today, and highs in the low 50s. We're
2: funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have
7: access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Sending Winston Flowers from WBUR supports your
8: lifelong commitment to learning and growing. Order by noon tomorrow for delivery on Valentine's
7: Day. Visit WBUR.org.
6: That's right. Tomorrow at noon is your last chance to send Winston Flowers from WBUR for Valentine's Day. Your gift to your special someone helps us bring you the journalism you count on so please go to WBUR.org you can choose your gift you can also do that by calling 1-800-909-9287 Winston Flowers will deliver your gift on Valentine's Day on Tuesday you can see the flowers and choose the perfect ones for your special someone at WBUR.org and with any of these gifts you will create more of the stories and conversations that touch your mind and often your heart that's WBUR.org. Go ahead and do that now while you have a moment. This is WBUR.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ayesha Roscoe. Thanks for joining us this morning. It's Super Bowl Sunday, and one tradition is getting skipped this year. Typically, presidents sit down for an interview ahead of the big game, but it seems President Biden and the network airing this year's game, Fox, are at an impasse. And that's where we'll, and that's where we'll start with NPR White House correspondent Scott Detrow. Good morning, Scott.
7: Hey, good morning.
0: So what what is going on with the president and Fox?
7: Well, we know it's not happening. Uh there was a pretty public back and forth about this between the White House and Fox in recent days. There had apparently been talks about doing an interview with the Fox streaming service aimed at black audiences called Fox Soul, but that fell through. And look, like you said, this is a tradition that goes back to the beginning of the Obama administration. Fox News is, of course, a conservative outlet that's been pretty critical of Biden. I will point out that Obama did do a couple interviews with Fox News when Fox had the Super Bowl when he was president. But look, I think this became more of a storyline because Biden just has not done as many interviews as other presidents have. I will point out he has yet to talk to NPR, Mm -hmm. Uh, though Biden did do two TV interviews this week coming out of his State of the Union, which is a big change for him.
0: So, I mean, moving on to another topic, there's been more action by U.S. fighter jets this week. The White House says a U.S. fighter jet shot down what it calls a high-altitude object near Alaska Friday. And Canada says a U.S. jet downed another object yesterday over the Yukon. What is going on? Are there alien overlords <laughs> on the way? I'm very concerned.
7: Listen, I think you know I've always been a big UFO person. Yes. <laughs> These can legitimately be called ufos they are unidentified flying objects so i'm gonna say ufo as much as possible here okay it's gonna be fine (laughs) so but but look like seriously though remember there was a lot of criticism from both parties about why the u.s waited so long to shoot down the og balloon the uh the initial chinese big white
0: balloon yes right
7: that made its way all across the united states before it was shot down uh biden officials in the pentagon said it was a safety issue and that they also got valuable intelligence from observing it But suddenly things are very different, a much more aggressive approach. Uh, This latest one, the White House says the U.S. and Canada tracked this latest object for 24 hours before Biden and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau decided to shoot it down. Then last night there was another issue. NORAD even sent uh, another fighter jet to investigate yet another possible object over Montana. Uh, That turned out to be a false alarm, but something has changed here. We don't know why things are suddenly much more aggressive, whether it's a tactical change, whether there's political pressure. And very importantly, we do not know where these latest UFOs came from, what they were doing. So I think the broader question is just how many UFOs are flying over North America right now and for how long this has been going on.
0: And, and did you think you would be saying that today? Um, or No, like... <laughs> but I, I, love yes. I love to say it. I love to say it. We don't usually get into county-level politics, but let's talk a, a bit about a change made to the local government around Disney World in Florida.
7: Yeah, Florida's legislature essentially took away Disney's long-standing self-governance. It operated as basically its own county government. It's, it's kind of oversimplifying a little bit, but that's what was going on. And now many of those local government aspects will be overseen by a board appointed by Florida Governor Rod DeSantis. This is the culmination of DeSantis attacking Disney for being too, quote, woke as part of a broader culture war battle that he has made a centerpiece of his time as governor. Remember, Disney had criticized changes that DeSantis pushed in schools related to sexual and gender education. When DeSantis won his second term by a wide margin, he declared Florida as the state woke goes to die. He is trying to follow through on that. He said this week that when it comes to Disney, there is a new sheriff in town, and DeSantis has been really aggressive about using his power to force changes on schools, colleges, even national organizations like like the College Board's AP curriculums, so a lot of questions about what he does with Disney and whether or not voters will see that as an overreach for a pretty... Popular, long-standing national uh, national company.
0: Uh, that's NPR White House correspondent and NPR Politics podcast host Scott Detrow. Thank you so much, Scott.
7: Thanks. I'll take my tinfoil hat off and talk to you soon.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're just hours away from the moment the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs hit the gridiron, and the anticipation is high. For the first time in a Super Bowl, two black quarterbacks will face off against each other. We've also got two brothers playing on opposing teams and a head coach who's looking to beat the team he once led. For most fans in Philadelphia and Kansas City, though, it's all about the excitement of a possible win. So here are two reports from two cities where victory is already in the air.
9: I'm Laura Benshoff in Philadelphia, where there's a line out the door at Mr. T's screen printing and embroidery shop.
10: All right, my friend, thanks again. Have a good weekend.
9: Bob Scalia's family business has been so slammed by Eagles fans, he hasn't been able to take a day off in weeks.
1: I retired on January 1st, and
6: I've been here ever since. (laughs) (laughs)
9: The small storefront is jammed with green and black t-shirts and hoodies. The city's unofficial uniform since the Eagles won the NFC championship. Scalia says as a Philadelphian, an Eagles fan, and a business owner, it's been great.
1: Everybody's making money. Everybody's, you know, everybody's happy. It's changed everybody's mood, sort of, you know. Everybody's excited.
9: Customers are buying up t-shirts that say, it's a Philly thing or hurts so good in honor of the Eagles quarterback, Jalen Hurts. Patricia Brown of West Philly says she's bought about 10 so far.
6: Three for my son and his
9: family. I got two for my daughter and her husband.
6: I got one for my
9: boyfriend, one
4: for me, and
9: now I'm getting four for my girlfriends. She sent these pieces of hometown pride to family in Florida and California. Brown says she's doing this despite the fact that she might not be able to watch much of the game herself. Well, actually, I'm working.
4: (laughs) I'm working. Yeah. But, you know, I'll sneak out, I'll, I'll be in uh, the lobby. I work at the
9: hotel, one of the hotels. But she's still going to wear the shirt she bought with a glittery eagle on the front. Eagles fever hasn't just taken over wardrobes, it's also taken over the airwaves. It's nearly impossible to escape the Eagles fight song, Fly Eagles Fly. It's getting covered in pre-K classrooms.
11: Fly, Eagles, fly.
9: a local Ukrainian men's choir and by seniors playing the kazoo. The city's also preparing for possible victory celebrations. Tow trucks are enforcing a large no-parking zone around City Hall. That's where fans converge and cause mayhem after a win. And everything is green. From the lights of the skyscrapers in Center City to the cakes in the grocery store. Outside Geno's stakes in South Philly, John Mangle and his son Gavin are feeling confident about the Eagles' chances.
3: They're calling it a
12: close game, but from what, talking to everybody and friends, they think it's going to be an Eagles blowout.
9: The Eagles won the Super Bowl for the first time ever pretty recently, back in 2018. That year they defeated the New England Patriots. Gavin, who's 14, was just nine years old at the time. But he says he still remembers the Eagles' pivotal trick play, known as the Philly Special, or Philly Philly.
3: And I just felt that like excitement,
0: that rush, you know, when you saw the win you how they flew off the Philly Philly and everything, and it was just
13: a the moment.
9: If the Eagles win the Super Bowl twice in five years, Mangle says this city of underdogs is going to be over the moon. Laura Benchoff, NPR News, Philadelphia.
14: I'm Savannah Holly Bates in Kansas City, Missouri. Here at Union Station, there's lots of excitement for the game. The Chiefs' flag hangs in the Grand Hall, the designated Chiefs' fan zone, where people like three-year-old Jackson Spencer get to shout their pride.
3: Go tee!
14: Jackson's father, Brandon Spencer, is lining up his children to take a photo next to the big 3D Roman numeral 57 display, celebrating the Chiefs' appearance in Super Bowl 57.
12: I have the pictures of me as a child with my mom and dad and so now to be able to come back and get those pictures of them at that same age, but the icing on the cake is that it's for the Super Bowl.
14: And Little Jackson says he knows the Chiefs will beat the Eagles. So they're gonna be
3: the greatest champion.
14: That's exactly what Ashley McBride thinks is going to happen too. She lives in Texas now and says the Chiefs helped put Kansas City on the map. She came back in town to visit family just in time for the Super Bowl i just
0: love how we celebrate out here you know really love our team and we go hard
14: over at gates barbecue one of the spots that made the city's spicy and sweet delicacy famous owner george gates says his food may have something to do with the chiefs success
1: a lot of the chiefs come to gates and so you know that's what makes them win in addition to hard work practice and a good coach and a good team
14: he's not the only one boasting so is Kansas City Mayor Quinton Lucas, who says he dreamed of moments like this.
12: As a kid who grew up in Kansas City, nothing could be better. And when you talk about this sustained run with Chiefs football, I mean, my God, it's, it's a great time to be mayor.
14: And a great time to make a wager with Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney over who the winner will be. Gates Barbecue, of course, and other local goods go to Philly if the Chiefs lose. But Lucas says he's certain he'll get the large pizza and six-pack of Philly beer that Kenny promised. And he has a bit of trash talk for the Eagles, too.
12: We know we're the best, and not in a cocky way, but in a nice, humble, Midwestern way, which is, we got a darn good team, and we're excited to be able to watch them with all of America this Sunday.
14: And excited to indulge in a little of that Philadelphia food he sure is coming his way soon after the game. For NPR News, I'm Savannah Holly Bates in Kansas City.
0: PR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in just a few minutes, radio talk show host Angela Yee discusses her departure from the popular show The Breakfast Club and talks about her new show, Way Up, with Angela Yee. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who
2: believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR.
6: Tuesday is Valentine's Day, and those gifts are not going to just choose themselves. Tomorrow at noon is your last chance to send your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR. Go to WBUR.org to choose your gift and that will help us bring you the journalism and the storytelling and the conversations that you count on day in and day out. Winston Flowers will deliver your gift on Valentine's Day on Tuesday. The deadline could sneak up on you. You might have a busy Sunday in store and Monday morning is likely to be busy so take care of it right now while you have a moment at WBUR.org.
2: I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. For the third time over the past week, an unidentified object that appeared over North America has been shot down. The latest was shot down over Canada's Yukon territory yesterday in a joint operation with the United States. The Canadian women's national soccer team says it will return to training beginning today and play at this week's She Believes Cup in Florida after Canada soccer threatened legal action. The team went on strike Friday over pay equity and budget cuts, but Canada soccer said it considered the players' action to be an unlawful strike. And today is Super Bowl Sunday. The Philadelphia Eagles are set to face the Kansas City Chiefs for the NFL title in Glendale, Arizona. I'm Giles Snyder with NPR News.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org and from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ayesha Roscoe. The U.S. is up against a lot on the world stage right now. There's there's the face-off with Russia over the war in Ukraine, and the tensions with China, they just got much hotter. For a look at how the U.S. is juggling these foreign policy challenges, we turn now to Nola Haynes. She's a national security expert at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. Good morning.
4: Good morning, Aisha. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So a tweet of yours caught my eye last week, basically wondering, is the U.S. Superman as it tries to deal Mm -hmm. with Russia and China? What did you mean by that?
4: Well, it's quite simple. So, you know, Superman is Superman, meaning can the U.S. be everywhere all at once? Mm. And that's kind of the, that was the thrust of the question. So by asking that question, I was responding to having conversations with people who have anxieties about what's going on. Mm.
0: So, because these are separate challenges with Russia and China, but they impact one another. And I would think complicate
4: one another. Am I
0: thinking about that correctly?
4: Yes. So they, they are separate situations in that they are different. So the way that, uh, I like to think about it is we there's an ongoing situation obviously with Russia and Ukraine with Russia illegally invading Ukraine so that's one situation that's not just about the US and our help to Ukraine it's a NATO it's a it's an allied situation so there's one there's there's a situation with Russia that a lot of people are worried about what if you Ukraine loses will we then go to war in that isolated situation there's a lot of coalition building there are a lot of allies involved in that with the situation in china that like the president said in the state of the union just recently that is our competitor we are not interested in conflict so the, the the thing to keep in mind here is that they are of equal importance i personally do not look at them as a threat assessment that says there's one acute threat and then the other is a pacing threat i look at them as both pressing issues but this, the 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 circumstances around them are very different, and because of that, we are able. The United States is able to make sure that. Each situation is being handled with the same amount of attention and focus.
0: So, so how do you uh, prioritize these challenges then? I mean, if one, you know, the idea of China being a competitor, but now balloons are getting shot down and uh, at least <laughs> one that we that we say is from China. I, I mean, it seems right. like it's heating up.
4: Well, you know. The goal of national security is to is to make sure that the assessment is correct. So we definitely do not want to jump to conclusions regarding the other UFOs, UFOs that's and, a good point, and Super yes. Bowl. That, that's, quite, that's quite a uh, mix on this Sunday morning, but <laughs> we definitely want to make sure we're not jumping to conclusions regarding the other ones because that would be a little dangerous. Mm-hmm. And anxieties are already high. People are already nervous. So we're still waiting to hear more information about the other flying objects. But regardless of surveillance balloon, that is... that happened. There's no way around it. It was a surveillance balloon. It had nothing to do with weather. It had nothing to do with geo mapping. It wasn't Google related that some people were perhaps, you know, hypothesizing it was a surveillance balloon. So what that means is diplomacy still first. No, No diplomacy door is closed, period. Meaningful diplomacy is still on the table. But at this point, it's It's about how Beijing wants to respond to those diplomatic efforts, because like I said at the beginning, there's there's no appetite for conflict. So we are definitely looking at China as, you know, a fierce competitor. But for right now, that's pretty much it. We are not the the moving into the space of thinking about conflict is not on the table.
0: I, I mean, right now, you have this international response to the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. How are some right. of all of the, these frictions on the world stage um, maybe affecting aid
4: efforts in just about the 30 seconds we have left? <laughs> in about 30 seconds. Well, the one thing that I can say is I, I this administration is very efficient at what it does, and there are a lot of people that care about what they do. And I do believe that these situations will be handled because there, there are people in place that care about what's happening around the world individually, and they are throwing their expertise towards the problem.
0: That's Nola Haynes of Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so
4: much, and have a wonderful Sunday.
0: The suffering caused by the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria is heartbreaking, especially for people around the world with ties to the region who are looking on from afar. In Turkish Coffee Lady, a coffee shop in Alexandria, Virginia, one woman has converted her business from a cafe celebrating Turkish coffee culture into a donation center for earthquake victims.
16: This is also, no? <laughs>
17: that <boy's> chocolate baklava also, That was chocolate hazelnut. Can I do one of those and coffee? My name is Gizem Şalcigil-White. I'm known as the Turkish Coffee Lady. I've been with the American Turkish Association for more than 10 years. Uh, the organizations are very, actually, um, experienced with this kind of fundraising because Turkey is prone to earthquakes. The Turkish Embassy is working tirelessly. Uh, to receive the un- in-kind donations, and also ship them, uh, you know, every evening with Turkish Airlines to Turkey. Right now, the winter conditions are dire. Um, it's freezing cold, and people don't have, unfortunately, any food, water, because they were sleeping during the earthquake. They don't have, you know, anything but sleepwear. So um, people are just unfortunately under the rubble you know um sorry freezing to death so we have like you know people donating toys um baby diapers we have tents a couple tents sleeping back here this is more like winter clothing like coats and you know pants and all that very crucial it was just we're so grateful, of course, for the response, but you know we want to see more from the U.S. I really want people to understand, you know, Turkish people need compassion at this moment. People are devastated. Um, we can't really sleep. I I didn't eat since yesterday. I just feel guilty that you know those people are suffering there and we are here so we're like what else we can do what else we can do for these people to build up their lives we want these people to understand they're not alone
0: Angela Yee is no stranger to the ear. She's the longtime host of Lip Service, a podcast focused on sexuality and romance, and was a co-host of The Breakfast Club, the massively popular and trend-setting radio program which featured all things culture, music, and community. But she said goodbye to her host chair this past fall to launch her own radio show called Way Up with Angela Yee.
8: Way up in the morning, ain't no ass I'd rather be. You can be from any barrels where you come and get the tea. It
0: premiered just last week and has already got it all. Big celebrity interviews, the news, financial and relationship advice, and even with all that time spent talking with call-in guests on our new show, Angela Yee managed to find some spare time to talk with me on this radio program before we get into your new show i do want to talk about your time with the breakfast club you know i mean this show for those listening who may not know i mean it's a kind of is known for like it's no holds barred uh celebrity interviews and you know focused on different types of the entertainment industry but then you know over time it became known for you know politics you had like every you know democratic candidate ever on the show and you know (laughs) tackling issues like police misconduct the me too movement like like why was it important for y'all to kind of branch out the way you did
18: i think it's important because of the critical times that we're in right now um and i also feel like it's my responsibility because for myself i didn't grow up being involved in politics or even thinking that it mattered if I voted or even thinking that I could have any type of influence in what happens um, politically. But I've learned that the power of being able to vote and also voting locally and also showing up to town halls and also knowing who your local elected officials are, those things are really important and they can matter. And they do matter. I think um, everybody needs to know that. and Everybody needs to understand the power that you have as a citizen
0: why did you want to start your own radio show?
18: Well, I had my own show previously um, before coming to the breakfast club. And so even when I started the break on the breakfast club, I always knew at some point I would get back to it. I just didn't know when, and it was the goal. And so I just feel like no matter where you are and what you're doing, you always have to be thinking about what's the next step for you to elevate. Is that
0: scary though, to be starting all over from scratch?
18: Yeah, it's scary, but it's exciting at the same time. I love being challenged and challenging myself. And so part of it is, yes, it's scary. But, you know, my favorite genre of movies is scary movies. I like being scared. I like the adrenaline (laughs) that comes with it. I like the rush of doing something that everybody doesn't think that you can do and accomplish and then making it happen. See, now I like scary movies, but I don't like scary in real life. Um, uh, I love it. <laughs> I think it's boring to like not be scared ever, you know, even when uh, there's a lot of times that I'm scared when I'm, I'll be nervous to go and talk in front of crowds of people. There's a lot of things that still make me nervous, but I think it's great when you're able to do it and overcome it and you get better every single time.
0: So, I mean, with this show, like, how are you thinking about, like, differentiating it from your other projects that you've done, whether it's The Breakfast Club or what you're still doing with Lip Service?
18: I think I try to incorporate a little bit of every piece of me to make this all me. You know, this is definitely already different from The Breakfast Club because it's what my uh, curation is. And so for me, obviously, I care a lot about Black women, I care about women, I care about empowerment, I care about financial well-being, I care about entrepreneurship, you know, I care about uh, advice, all the things that I've been doing, I'm able to bring here. And so, you know, there's pieces of me that were on The Breakfast Club. Like I have my Ask Ye segment always mm-hmm. that was focused on advice. And then Wealth Wednesdays, which is something that I started like five years ago. Now that's on here. And so I'm able to bring that with me along with the interviews that I do and who I am. So it's, it still feels really authentic and genuine, and it's, but it's all me.
0: So what do
18: you hope audiences will take away from your new show? What I love is the way we start the show. It's this segment I created called Shine a Light, where people call in and they just say something positive about somebody who's impacted their life in a positive way. It could be something small or it could be something huge. But what I want us to do is just really show that type of gratitude and have a space for people to just talk about amazing, positive things. Like one woman called and she's going through a breakup and she wanted to shine a light on her two sisters who are always there for her that helped it through. I want to just spread love and like people love that segment and the mm-hmm. phones light up and that makes me happy that people want to call in and just be like, yo, I want to shine a light on this person. Okay.
0: I mean, it's cause I wanted to ask you that. I kind of feel like from that, I have to ask because a lot of times people will feel like positive stuff doesn't sell the way negative stuff still. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like if you're <laughs> talking about somebody or calling somebody out, you know, on social media, that'll go way faster than that positive thing. So, like, I guess, what do you think about that dynamic of you? It seems like you're trying to bring the light, but it seems like so many other people are like... Is that what says?
18: I think in radio, though, that's different. I remember the days of the shock jock and the negativity, and people used to love that. I don't feel like people want that on the radio when mm. they're coming there to get their day going, when they're coming to get some information, calling in, asking real-life questions with re- real concerns. That is important to me, just the person who's listening that's like, okay, let me call in and trust you enough to share something with you.
0: Angela Yee is the host of Way Up with
18: Angela Yee. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Aisha. I appreciate you.
0: You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Some asylum seekers arriving to the southern border are doing so with their dogs. But when they cross the U.S. Mexico border, they're separated from their beloved pet. Enter Ruby Montana. She's helping to reunite the dogs and their families. Reporter Angela Cocherga paid a visit.
19: It's a sunny afternoon, and Lupe, a miniature white poodle, is enjoying a walk through a quiet El Paso neighborhood. Oh my gosh, she loves walks. That's Ruby Montana holding the leash.
20: She definitely has learned quite a few words in English. (laughs) I can't say the word walk unless it's walk time.
19: Montana runs the Bridge Pup Rescue Group that helps dogs along the U.S.-Mexico border. Lupe is from Venezuela. Her family brought her with them on their more than 2,700-mile trek to El Paso to seek asylum this fall.
8: El pantano nos llegaba por las
19: caderas. Oldimar, Lupe's owner, says a swamp they crossed in the treacherous Darien Gap was up to their hips. She asks us not to use her full name because her immigration case is pending. Oldimar says they waded through water for six hours.
6: Botó el bolso y se quedó con Lupe.
19: She says her 14-year-old daughter ditched her suitcase with all of her belongings from Venezuela to carry Lupe on her shoulders. The family got the dog as a puppy and never considered leaving her behind when they fled. Montana, with bridge pups, remembers getting a call about them from the U.S. Border Patrol one night.
20: This agent said, you know, this family just made it all the way from Venezuela, their dog
19: is going to be taken from them, they're hysterical. Animals are not allowed in Border Patrol processing facilities. Here in El Paso, Border Patrol officials say agents call the city's already overcrowded animal shelter for pickup. Some reach out to Montana's rescue group like they did in this case. She started to get calls about dogs like Lupe last summer when more Venezuelan migrants began showing up at the border. After people are released from Border Patrol custody to await immigration hearings, they try to get their dogs back. In Lupe's case, the family was quickly put on a bus that they eventually found out was bound for New York City. Only then were they able to call Montana, and they were frantic.
20: Incredibly emotional, wanted to know where Lupe was, was
19: she okay, did I have her? The family is still in New York, and video chats with Montana often to see Lupe. Hola.
21: Como estas?
19: The dog sits (laughs) on Montana's lap and looks at the screen. Lupe. <laughs> Donde mi amor, Reyo, Lupe. Ay, Dios mío, Santo miro. Pets aren't allowed where the family is staying. I have promised them that I am more than
20: happy to keep Lupe for as long as necessary, even if that means forever.
19: Montana has reunited four dogs with their families in recent months, like Simba, a little terrier mix. Montana recorded as Simba and her family ran towards each other in the El Paso airport. After being released by Border Patrol, this family was also headed to New York City to wait on their asylum case, but not without their dog. These dogs are part of their family. They're not objects to be taken like a sweatshirt or a a jacket. And it's just cruel to not have a set policy or procedure in place. Instead, it's only happening because caring border patrol agents, the city shelter, and Montana all work together to help people who migrate and their dogs stay together. For NPR News, I'm Angela Cocherga, in El Paso.
0: This is NPR News.
6: Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. And next on Weekend Edition, you'll consider the intersection of science and the HBO hit show, The Last of Us.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, with local and sustainably sourced furniture. Seven showrooms and design centers around Boston, and a new one in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com.
15: Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that make your world bigger. I'm Lisa Mullins. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order by noon tomorrow for Valentine's Day delivery
6: of any of our four choices, including two dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org. To recap, Valentine's Day is Tuesday, and that means at least a little bit of planning ahead. Tomorrow at noon is your last chance to send Winston Flowers from WBUR. Winston Flowers will deliver your gift on Valentine's Day on Tuesday. Just go to WBUR.org to choose your gift. Choose your gift now while you have a moment before your Sunday gets busy and before the whirlwind of Monday morning. So you're not cutting it too close to that deadline of noon tomorrow with your contribution, you'll be helping WBUR provide a full range of in-depth journalism. Again, the deadline for choosing your gift is 12 noon tomorrow. Go to WBUR.org and thanks.
23: I'm Tom Papa filling in for Peter Sagel. On last week's Wait, Wait, Adam Burke worried about companies increasing productivity by canceling meetings. I used to
3: work in offices, and if they cancel meetings, where am I going to fall asleep?
23: <laughs> we'll keep you awake with our Not My Job guest, Gina Davis, on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR.
3: Tonight at 6 on 90.9 WBUR.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staplesconnect.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The new HBO show, The Last of Us, is a whopper. Climate change has fueled the rise of a new pathogen that has nearly wiped out humanity. The cause of the infection is a bit surprising.
5: Not bacteria, not viruses, so
18: fungus. Yes, that's the usual response. Fungi seem harmless enough.
0: Yes, a fungus is the cause. As part of an ongoing series, NPR is looking at what might cause the next pandemic. And so The Last of Us had us wondering if something like this could actually happen. Here's NPR's global health correspondent, Michaeline
13: Duclef. For the past decade, I've reported on infectious diseases, and I've often asked scientists, What keeps you up at night? What types of pathogens could cause a horrible pandemic? I hear Hendra
18: influenza,
24: Nipah virus,
13: coronaviruses. Basically, it's always a virus. I've never heard of fungus, and a fungus has never caused a massive pandemic similar to COVID. And that's because viruses have several big advantages over fungi. For one, They spread much, much faster. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's Dr. Aileen Marty. She's an infectious disease specialist at Florida International University.
15: The big advantage, if you will, for viruses is one viral particle can become thousands in a very short period of time. And as it produces more viral particles, it has the propensity to have mutations. And that means viruses
13: can evolve much faster than fungi. And that can lead to a new version that can be more dangerous. So that all of a sudden, the virus can start evading our immune systems. And in a flash, the whole world becomes susceptible. Marty says fungi really can't do this because they mutate 10,000 times slower. And as an aside, the fungus in The Last of Us that controls people's brains, it's made up. It's totally sci fi. Plus, Marty says, People who have healthy immune systems can fight off fungal infections before they become dangerous.
15: The reality is that most immunocompetent people do not get sick from a fungus entering their body.
13: If you had to put money on, you know, what's going to cause the next pandemic, would you put it on a fungi or a virus?
15: I would put it on a virus. I really would. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay it. Attention to fungi because many, many, many people die every year from all these other types of issues.
13: In fact, about 1.5 million people die from fungal infections each year. And there's a growing concern that number will go up because of climate change. So here's where the show The Last of Us gets the science right. Most fungi live in the environment, outside, so they can't survive inside people. We're too hot. But as the scientist in the show explains... What if
18: that were to change? What if, for instance, the world were to get slightly warmer? Well...
13: Laura Goodman studies pathogen genomics at Cornell University. She says there's evidence that warming temperatures have already led to the emergence of a new fungal disease. That one is
20: pretty nasty because... It is resistant to many of the drugs that we have available. And not only that, but it seems to have a strong advantage in changing in such a way that it can cause disease in people.
13: The disease is called Candida auris. And again, Goodman says it's people with compromised immune systems who are at risk.
20: For many people, it's probably harmless.
13: But there's concern that could change.
20: It definitely keeps me up at night because I see all the work that is done on bacteria and viruses and how much we know. And then we look over at the fungal pathogens and it is
13: so much less. And with The Last of Us raising all this awareness, she hopes that might change too. Michaelene Ducleff, NPR News.
0: This afternoon on All Things Considered, Invisible Tech Workers. Big tech relies a lot on contractors. Pre-pandemic, the New York Times reported that Google actually had more contractors than full-time employees. Turns out they're cheaper and companies can just not renew their contracts. This afternoon, what counts as a layoff in tech? Listen live at this station's website or at npr.org. When the first letter arrived at the Parker family home, they dismissed it as a silly prank. It was, after all, addressed to Peter Parker, the alter ego of... Spider-Man, Spider-Man. That's right, Spider-Man. But then something strange happened, says Pamela Parker, who grew up in the home in Queens, New York. The letters kept coming, dozens of them, all addressed to Peter Parker.
15: We've got credit card offers in his names and magazines and occasional prank phone calls. But we would also get these um, really earnest (laughs) fan letters um, from children.
0: It was only years later when a local journalist told the family that their address, 20 Ingram Street, had been printed in a Spider-Man comic in 1989 that it suddenly made sense. It was no joke. The Parker family really did live at the same address as Peter Parker, but they say there's no relation.
15: I think it's a it's a really charming coincidence, and uh, you know I hope it it gives me some superpowers. The the main one is impressing little kids.
0: The letters kept piling up, especially after the Spider-Man movie franchise introduced the comic book hero to a whole new generation of kids. What's happening?
5: They're starting to come through, and I can't stop them.
0: Now, some of those letters are on display at the city reliquary. The founder, David Herman, says the collection has drawn a lot of attention.
5: People come in and they right away are endeared to these because I think they see a little bit of themselves in them. You know, everybody remembers back to a time when they had a hero and wanted to reach out and have some personal connection to them.
0: Many of the letters are asking Spider-Man about his weapons or costumes or even asking the superhero to come over for a play date.
25: Ever since I got bit by that spider, I've only had one week where my
2: life has felt normal.
0: But for David Herman, one letter stands out for its, let's just say, menacing tone.
5: Hello, Peter. Dear Spider-Man, from Connor, I'm a big fan of you. Everybody knows your secret. You're Peter Parker. I want a web slinger and all the Spider-Man things, or else I'll tell Aunt May.
0: Aunt May, of course, raised Peter Parker, and Connor clearly meant business.
3: I'm not Spider-Man. I mean... What would make you think that I was Spider-Man?
0: Let's hope he didn't follow through on his threat to expose Spider-Man's real identity. And those letters, you can read them for yourself if you visit. They are on display until April.
11: I'm the son of a bass! Los Angeles, 1972.
0: On the seventh anniversary of the Watts Riots, the soul and funk label stacks records, staged an enormous concert at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. It was called Watts Stax. The concert was filmed and turned into a movie of the same name out 50 years ago this month. Stax's entire lineup at the time played, and let me be clear, this lineup was nothing short of incredible. The Staple Singers, Kim Weston, Carla Thomas, Albert King, Isaac Hayes, and the Bar-Kays, which played their hit, Son of Shaft, which you hear in the background. James Alexander was the Bar-Kays bassist, and he joins us now from WKNO in Memphis, which is where Stax Records was based. Thanks for being here.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. And thanks for making me get up so early to do this, okay? (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, we appreciate you getting out of bed for us. So the, the Reverend Jesse Jackson gave this opening speech at the festival. I think we got a clip of it.
3: Today on this program, you will hear gospel and rhythm and blues and jazz. All those are just labels.
1: We know that music is music. All of our people got
0: a soul. So what was the idea of Watts Stacks? Like, wh- what was this concert all about?
1: Well, this concert was about just showing people that people can really have a good time without tearing up everything, you know, without having a riot and all of that stuff like that. And uh, as you know, it was uh, seven years after the uh, Watts riots that this event took place. And would you believe that 100,000 people came together and there were no incidents?
0: What, what do you remember about that day? It was August 20th, 1972.
1: Man, what do I remember about that day? First of all, I had butterflies, uh, you know, because the Bar case, like many others, had never played uh, for an audience that big. But we had all these wild ideas. We had this idea of getting some horses and chariots and riding into the Los Angeles Coliseum on horses and chariots.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: But it would cause us we would have to go across the field. Yeah. So they said, Oh no, you y'all finna mess everything up. So we had to we had to go to plan B.
0: Y'all were all in white, and then there was the the person who, I don't know who that was, who had the big white afro, and y'all had gold chains. I mean, like, the outfits were out of this world.
1: You know, we wanted to really take over the show. You know, we wanted to be, you know, all that. So we couldn't ride the horses and chariots, so we had to come up with some outfits. So that's what we came up with. So when we walked out on stage, you know, for a few minutes, people were just saying, ooh, and ah.
0: Yeah, it stood out. It yeah, definitely we should. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Oh, don't get sharp.
0: <laughs> yes. Mhm. Did you watch any of the other performances when they were happening? Like, is there another performance, like by Stax artist that really stuck with you from that day?
1: Yeah, Rufus Thomas. Uh, you know, when he walked out on stage in those hot pants. Did did, did you did you notice that?
12: Drop your wings. Feet are ticking. You know, you're doing the fucking oh,
0: oh. And I mean, to me, and then and you had that point where everybody ran out on the field and like all of that. Like that stood out to me. Like that was.
1: Well, uh, somebody came up on stage and told Rufus, you know, yeah, you told these people to come out on the field. You need, you need to tell them to go back to their, <laughs> their seats. We all going to have some fun but you ain't supposed to have your fun on the ground. You're supposed to be in the stand. More power to the folks. So let's go to the stand.
0: You know, the concert, as we're talking about, it was turned into a movie. Like, were you thinking about that when you were performing? Not only that you had this big audience, but that it was being filmed.
11: We
1: didn't... Look, the owners of Stax Records put us on an airplane, all of the odds, and just told us we were going to L.A. to do a concert. Then We didn't know nothing about no filming, or anything like that, but we were just glad to get out of town, you know what I
11: mean? (laughs)
1: Yeah. A lot of people in our group had never been in Los Angeles before, so you know that was the farthest they ever been away from home, you know what I mean?
0: What did you think of the film when you first saw it?
1: I thought it was amazing. I mean, because Mm -hmm. actually it was not a film as films go. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of people think it was a lot of music, but if you think about it, it was a lot of talking in it.
0: It is. I mean, I felt like it was like a conversation for the Black community. Like, there are all these, between the music scenes, there are people talking about different issues, Black people talking about different issues.
12: You know, I, I dig the natural. I think the natural is a beautiful, beautiful way of wearing your hair for all Black people.
9: No, the Black woman has always been two steps ahead of her man, always.
7: Hey, look! I'm not prejudiced because some of my best friends are colored. If you know what I'm talking
0: about. <laughs> and it felt like so many of the conversations they were having are the same conversations we're having today. You know, police brutality, crime in the black community, interracial relationships. Like you, like these are all conversations that I see on Twitter, Black Twitter, every day.
1: Right. I mean, it, it's really amazing that everything that you see on watch stacks. It's so relevant. This is just, uh, it's just—it's just like it happened yesterday.
0: Mm-hmm. Moving on to something, I mean, very serious. Like the story of the Barqués is is really unbelievable, right? Like, very sadly, most of your band had died in in a plane crash. The plane crash that also killed Otis Redding five years before this concert, and you had to work to reconstitute the band. How did you manage that?
1: Well, almost immediately after the accident, the owners of Stacks came to myself and Ben Carley because, you know, Ben Carley was the only surviving member on the, you know, of the plane crash. They came to us and they said, "Uh, look, um, what do you guys want to do about the barcades? Do y'all want to, you know, is this it or do y'all want to, you know, carry on? And of course, I said carry on. Ben Carley was not, he didn't want to take the leadership position, so... At that point, at a very early age, you know, I took the leadership position. I did not know what I was doing, but uh here we are and f y i uh two thousand twenty four the barcades will be celebrating its sixtieth anniversary.
0: oh wow, what do you think is the legacy of of watch stacks and and what do you want people today to know about it,
1: even back then, you know Definitely violence is not the answer. No matter how bad situations are, you should always think about trying to come to a peaceful solution, you know? And I know sometimes that's hard, you know, like for instance, in Memphis right now, I'm pretty sure everybody's been seeing this nationwide uh, about the uh, police brutality in Memphis, Uh, but it's happening all over the country and uh, we just have to come up with a peaceful solution. And the people that do all of this stuff, need to be held accountable.
0: That's James Alexander, basis of The Bar case, one of the many acts in Watt Stacks. The documentary that brought the concert to theaters across America was released 50 years ago this month. Thank you for being with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash afterthefact, and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at... AECF.org. This is NPR.
6: Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as weekend edition Sunday continues. You'll get the latest on the impact of the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. It's 41 degrees in Boston, partly sunny skies today, and highs reaching the low 50s, lows overnight in the mid 30s, then tomorrow, a mostly cloudy Monday, a slight chance of some rain, and highs in the low 40s. We're
22: funded by you, our listeners, and by Elliot Community Human Services, with two new community behavioral health centers open 24-7 in Danvers and Lynn. ElliotCHS.org.
24: She was just 15 when she left her family in London to join ISIS. Now at 23, Shamima Begum wants to go home.
23: But why? At times, Shamima Begum genuinely does show remorse. And then at other times, I think she's still trying to really grasp what she was part of.
24: That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News.
23: Today at 5 on
3: 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe, good morning. After the massive earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, there's still hope to find survivors. We hear from a
3: rescue team. There's a voice there.
10: There's a voice there?
3: Search and rescue team, if you can hear me, tap
0: three times. And a number of HBCUs have faced complaints about shoddy facilities. What's behind these issues? Plus, Valentine's Day is this week, but don't stick with the same old routine. Some ideas that aren't dinner and a movie. It's Sunday, February 12th. News is next.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The death toll from last week's earthquakes in Turkey and Syria has now climbed past 30,000. Turkish disaster officials raised the number of dead today as authorities are taking the first steps toward holding accountable those who may bear responsibility for the collapse of buildings. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports around 130 people have been detained, including contractors, as critics point to what they call substandard building practices.
3: Turkey has suffered earthquakes for a long time, and for decades, improved construction codes meeting earthquake engineering standards have been on the books but critics say they have often gone unenforced, which may in part explain the large number of buildings that slumped, or sank, or simply collapsed into a heap of rubble. Turkey State News Agency reports that arrest warrants have gone out and contractors and others are being detained. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands remain homeless in cold winter conditions. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul.
2: For the third time over the past week, an unidentified object that appeared over North America has been shot down, the latest shot down over Canada's Yukon Territory. Dan Karpinchuk reports the downing was carried out by a U.S. aircraft as part of a NORAD operation. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said Canadian and U.S. warplanes were scrambled when the unmanned object violated Canadian airspace. Trudeau said he conferred with President Joe Biden. Canadian authorities will now recover and analyze the wreckage NORAD says it has been tracking the object for 24 hours. Canada's Defence Minister Anita Anand confirmed the object had been shot down about 100 miles from the Canada-U.S. border over central Yukon. She said the object, which was flying at about 40,000 feet, posed a reasonable threat to the safety of civilian flight. The action comes a day after the U.S. shot down a separate high-altitude object off the coast of Alaska near the Canadian border. For NPR News, I'm Dan
8: Karpinchuk in Toronto.
2: United Nations human rights experts are calling for the reform of institutionalized police culture in the United States following the recent deaths of Kenan Anderson and Tyree Nichols. Lisa Schlein in Geneva reports both men died after being beaten by police.
19: The three UN international experts say they will be conducting an official fact-finding trip to the U.S. in April. This follows an invitation by Washington in December before the deaths of Anderson and Nichols. However, the investigators say the police beating deaths of these men will figure prominently in upcoming meetings with U.S. government officials and other people of concern. They say they will ensure police brutality is addressed. Specifically, they also plan to raise concerns about the excessive use of tasers by police that often result in the death of people who pose no danger. Results of their investigation will be presented to the U.N. Human Rights Council.
2: You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Wayland's school superintendent is filing a complaint with the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination after the town's school committee placed him on involuntary leave. Omar Easy is the district's first black superintendent. In his complaint, Easy alleges he has faced racial stereotyping from school staff and the school committee in Wayland. On what would have been his 89th birthday, Boston Celtics legend Bill Russell will be honored at today's home game against the Grizzlies. Russell died last year. This afternoon's ceremony will include a video montage acknowledging Russell's legacy on the court. The players will be wearing their special Bill Russell tribute uniform. A Navy pilot who grew up in Waltham has a major role in the Super Bowl's opening ceremony. Lieutenant Jacqueline Drew will be part of the flyover during the national anthem today. All the pilots will be women. That flyover celebrates 50 years of women serving as Navy pilots. In the forecast for the Boston area, sunshine today and highs in the low 50s.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future.
8: Sending Winston Flowers from WBUR supports your source for news. Order yours by noon tomorrow for delivery on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org. And, you know, deadlines exist
6: to help make us the people that we want to be. Tomorrow at noon is your last chance to send Winston flowers from WBUR for Valentine's Day. These are... Gorgeous flowers They'll make somebody Very happy And your gift Will help us Bring you the journalism That matters to you So please go to WBUR.org To make your choice And go ahead And do that now While you have a moment Sunday can get busy Monday mornings Can get extremely busy So go ahead And place that order You can call 1-800-909-9287 Or go to WBUR.org That is how you Choose your gift And Winston Flowers will deliver your gift on Valentine's Day on Tuesday. Celebrate someone you love and support the full range of journalism and storytelling that WBUR brings you day in and day out. That's WBUR.org. And thanks.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, thanks for joining us this morning. Nations from around the world are rushing aid to Turkey and Syria as they attempt to deal with the massive quakes that hit on Monday. The U.S. is also sending supplies and relief workers. NPR's Jason Bobian spent the day in the city of Adiaman with an urban search and rescue team from the U.S. Agency for International Development.
3: The U.S. search and rescue teams have just one goal, to find people alive.
7: We are here to affect the rescues of those deeply entombed and you know, reinforced concrete structures. John
3: Morrison is a spokesperson for USAID's urban search and rescue team. They arrived on a US Air Force C-17 transport plane with sophisticated listening devices, specialized cameras, concrete cutting equipment, and highly trained dogs.
7: This is a Vader. He's a six-year-old black lab.
3: Paul Serzin is one of the canine search and rescue
7: specialists on the team. Everybody gives off scent, no matter if you just came out of the the shower or you haven't showered in days. We give off scent from our decomposing cells in our body. We train those dogs to find that concentrated scent. With thousands
3: of people still missing, the search dogs can answer the burning question, where in the vast fields of rubble might there still be people alive? When one of the USAID teams arrives in the center of the city of Adiaman, residents are digging into debris piles, some with backhoes, some just with shovels. The American team, led by Mark Campe, is mobbed by people who want the dog to search various collapsed buildings.
10: right, Right now, I have a target that I need to go look at, I need to investigate. Campe
3: and his team take the black lab named Peter Pan to a massive gray pile of concrete and twisted steel rebar. Locals say three people were found alive there earlier in the day. Peter Pan scrambles over the pile, sniffing along the surface.
10: He is working on potentially where the smell is coming from, so you'll see that he's going back and forth, and his uh, search pattern is getting tighter and tighter as it gets closer to the pile.
3: Campe is coordinating the various members of the USAID team. Search dogs try, he says, to hone in on specific smells.
10: They do also what's called scent elimination. If anybody out here has already been anywhere close to the pile, then they'll do a a mental note that that person is not what I'm looking for. That person is out here with me.
3: At this site, groups of local residents are working to pull bodies out of the flattened apartments. They zip them into black bags and load them into the back of a small white pickup truck. The scene is chaotic. Everyone wants Campay and the USAID team's attention.
24: There's a voice there.
10: There's a voice there? Yeah. There's a voice on side Charlie that they're saying they're hearing.
24: Where? Side
10: Charlie, low.
3: They head over to set up sophisticated listening devices yeah. that can detect even faint tapping from anyone inside.
10: All right, we'll meet you on the other side.
3: Campay orders everyone to be quiet.
10: Search and rescue team, if you can hear me, tap. Three times.
3: A crowd has gathered. Turkish men bundled against the cold, crouched down. Everyone is focused on the American with the big headphones, hoping for a sign that he's getting some signal. But there's nothing, no tapping, no voices. It seems to be just another disappointing lead.
10: We'll run the dog just to make sure. Hey Tom, do you have eyes on Matt?
3: Campe calls in Peter Pan and his handler just to check further.
10: So, Are you comfortable with sending Peter Pan in that way? Okay.
3: The dog scurries down into a hole, but soon emerges. Once again, he doesn't appear to be picking up signs of anyone alive. Then, all of a sudden, the dog has detected something. At first, everyone except Peter Pan stops. Then the operation shifts.
10: So with the alert from Peter Pan, Uh, we're going to elevate this one level and um, call this a work site, which means we're gonna start working to possibly access any victims that may still be inside.
3: The USAID team tapes the area off and calls in other team members who specialize in digging into voids that may have been left behind as the building collapsed. Peter Pan then barks at another crevice close to the first one. Campe says this is a strong indication that someone is or was recently alive in that spot.
10: He can discern uh, between human remains and live victims. And he himself corroborated what he was alerting to on the other side by coming here and alerting similarly. So it's a pretty strong signal from him that there's somebody alive in there. I'm confident with uh, two different points. I would say it's a strong signal.
3: It's been four and a half days since the first powerful quake hit on Monday. The temperatures have been dropping below freezing at night. Many residents say that they've given up hope of finding anyone else alive. But members of the USAID search team say that in other quakes, people have been pulled out of the rubble more than a week after the disaster struck. Soon after Peter Pan barked that he'd found something, a team of Turkish miners digging on the opposite side of the debris field Announced that they've made contact with a woman and a child trapped at their site.
11: It's miracle.
3: Just miracle. Leila Yilmaz, who used to live in the building, is watching the Turkish miners work. The thirty-eight-year-old says she's overjoyed that one of her neighbors is alive inside the massive pile of
17: debris.
3: God blessed her, and currently she's waiting. It's getting dark and the teams at both sites set up construction lights to continue working. The USAID team brings the Turkish miners some specialized digging tools and sends over an American medical team. Both teams work deep into the night. Close to midnight, the Turks managed to get the woman and one of her children out alive. The USAID team searched extensively where Peter Pan had barked, but in the end, the American team only found human remains. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Adiaman, Turkey.
1: We
0: now turn to Aleppo in Syria, where relief efforts are also underway. Aleppo is in northwestern Syria. Two million people live there, and it suffered severe damage in last week's earthquakes. Himyar Abdel-Mogni is the Syria representative for the United Nations Population Fund, which focuses on women and girls. He joins us now from Aleppo. Thanks for being with us.
24: Thank you very much, Anding, for having me.
0: Can you tell us about what you're seeing in terms of damage in Aleppo right now?
24: It is really catastrophic what is happening now in, in Aleppo. Uh, Aleppo is part of the northern part of, of Syria. So uh, this is one of the cities that has been uh, uh, majorly impacted by, by the uh, recent uh, earthquake. The As you said, there are estimations of uh, more than 2 million who are inhabiting in this uh, city, but uh, more than seventy percent of them are are women uh, who have been already through a protracted crisis th- throughout the the, the past uh, ten years.
0: So, are those your aid priorities? Just getting um, basics and supplies to the women in the area? Are, are there other priorities that you have?
24: There are, of course, many priorities. We are now responding to the first line. So, what we after the the uh, a rescue committee and the people who are uh, getting the bodies has ended their their operations now we are responding in the shelters there are in in alebo only there are more than 220 uh, shelter that uh, has uh, more than 70,000 uh, people there mm. these are in the shelters only but mm-hmm. the, the rest of these people are in the streets they cannot go to their home they are they are in panic because the earthquakes has not yet ended and there are shakes and waves coming and people are really scared to go back to their homes. Most of the, uh, the city, if you know, has been affected through the long crisis and most of the buildings has been already, uh, you know, either shaking or, or destroyed. So uh, now is, 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 is the time every day we are seeing buildings that are collapsing more and more.
0: What is the medical situation like? And, and are health facilities able to be up and running with, with the impact of the earthquake?
24: Of course, the, the health facilities, there are hospitals uh, provided still uh, the, the, the services. Uh, they are really burdened with receiving the, uh, the affected and the injured people and then the, those who has been going through uh, the trauma. Uh, women, as, as, as always in, in this crisis, will be uh, accessing the services, but it's not, it's not as, as it used to be. So those regular services that women could, could have, it is not uh, now possible because doctors have shifted their attentions. We have
0: been reporting on how hard it is to deliver aid in some parts of the affected areas in Syria. How has this affected your own relief efforts?
24: For, for us at UNFPA, we have been coordinating with the with the government, the authorities, and we have been getting all the since the crisis started. Uh, the clearances and the approvals has been taken quickly and rapidly in these uh, areas. There are the cross line uh, that are the the uh, areas that are not under the uh, control of the of the government. Uh, now, is UN is discussing how they can and today has started from Turkey and also. Uh, crossing the line from inside Syria to these uh, affected areas. The process now is taking humanitarian and there are no, uh, nothing is is, uh, or can uh, hinder us from from going there. We are humanitarian workers. We will do our best to respond to the people in need, wherever they are and whatever the, the, the political condition is. What more
0: does Syria need at this time? I know the need is overwhelming, but what should people be
24: focusing on? What should governments be focusing on? Indeed, whatever kind of, of uh, supports that has given food is still, is still an, an, an issue. Uh, the health, the medications, we, with our resources that we have and the, the uh, kind of commodities that we had inside the country will be depleted very soon.
0: Himyar Abdel-Mogni is the Syria representative for the United Nations Population Fund. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. In about six minutes, you'll hear about the reasons behind the longstanding underfunding of historically black colleges and universities in the U.S.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, sourced in New England and focused on combining design with handmade craftsmanship. More about their sustainably crafted furniture at circlefurniture.com. And downtown Boston's new Third Space, pop-up art gallery, live performances, lunch hangout, and Thursday night events. More at downtownboston.org thirdspace.
20: Sending Winston flowers from WBUR supports your commitment to curiosity. Order by noon tomorrow for delivery on Valentine's Day at WBUR.org.
6: Now, it is true a lot of us have something of a love-hate relationship with deadlines, but... What's not to love about gorgeous Winston Flowers? Tomorrow at noon is a deadline. It is your last chance to choose your gift of Winston Flowers from WBUR for Valentine's Day. Go to WBUR.org. Winston Flowers will deliver your gift on Tuesday, Valentine's Day. And your gift will help us bring you the journalism that matters to you day in and day out. That's WBUR.org.
2: I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines fighter jets have now taken out three flying objects in the airspace over North America over the course of a week. The latest came yesterday when U.S. and Canadian fighter jets were scrambled to shoot down an unidentified object flying over Canada in the Yukon. The entire city of Flint, Michigan remains under a boil water advisory. The advisory is expected to last at least through tomorrow. It's a familiar situation. In 2014, the switch to a different water source led to a public health crisis because of lead contamination. And today is Super Sunday. The Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles are playing in the Super Bowl in Glendale, Arizona. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is NPR.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ayesha Roscoe. The way emergency rooms work has quietly changed over the last decade. No matter the name on the outside of the building, hospitals often contract private companies to run the ER. Most of those companies are owned by private equity investors known for taking on massive debt, cutting expenses and trying to sell for big returns after a few years. And as Blake Farmer of member station WPLN reports, some of the biggest expenses in the ERs are the doctors themselves.
23: Pregnant and scared, Natasha Valle went to the only hospital in Clarksville, Tennessee, because she was bleeding. It was a miscarriage. But it took three separate trips to the ER, creating three separate bills she's still paying.
24: Literally
0: three days in a row.
23: She says not until the third visit did she see a doctor.
0: At the time, I wasn't thinking, oh, I needed to see a doctor. But when you do think about it, it's kind of like, well, dang, why didn't I see a doctor?
23: It's unclear if the repeat ER visits were due to delays in seeing a physician, or if that affected her care, but the experience worried her. Seventeen months beforehand, the hospital had outsourced its emergency rooms to American Physician Partners. It's a fast-growing ER staffing company joining the ranks of the largely unknown but dominant firms that run ERs, Team Health and Envision. Each is owned by private equity investors. One way they're profiting is by using more nurse practitioners and physician assistants, which are now some of the fastest growing careers in the country. Typically, they have half the training of a physician and make less than half the salary. This strategy first became evident to me when American physician partners held a training in early 2020. ER staffers were brushing up on life-saving procedures. Wearing purple latex gloves, ER staff handle racks of pork ribs to practice putting in chest tubes for a collapsed lung. And among the doctors were a couple of nurse practitioners, like Joshua Allen. He told me his ER in Kentucky had just gone down to having one doctor on duty per shift along with a nurse practitioner, so they were teaching him some skills that are usually only left to physicians.
7: I guess we're the first guinea pigs for our ER because if
23: we do have a major trauma and multiple victims come in, there's only one doctor there, and we're there as well, we need to be prepared to do... Uh, this procedure. The two-day training also covered intubation to clear an airway and using powerful sedatives. At the time, the ER company's chief medical officer, Dr. Tony Brenningstuhl, said training nurse practitioners and physician assistants on these skills added depth to the staff.
18: They're a part of our team and we want to make sure we're helping them feel confident and help developing their skills.
23: In the last several years, the profitable side of the strategy has become more obvious. Confidential company documents reviewed by NPR and Kaiser Health News show American physician partners increased its use of nurse practitioners and physician assistants. APP has numerous cost-saving initiatives underway, the document says, including a shift of staffing between doctors and so-called mid-level practitioners, meaning nurse practitioners and physician assistants. It was pitched as a way to save millions of dollars. In a statement, the company stressed they are supervised by doctors and called it a blended model where everyone can work to their full potential. This company is hardly alone. One study finds the use of nurse practitioners and physician assistants in the ER has nearly tripled since 2005. It's unclear whether this results in worse care, but it does seem to drive up what patients pay. One study shows patients are more likely to be sent to specialists or for x-rays and other imaging, racking up additional bills all along the way. Dr. Arthur Smolensky is a board-certified ER physician and assistant professor at the University of Tennessee who's been pushing back on private equity in his specialty.
12: Most of us didn't go into medicine to supervise an army of people that are not as well-trained as we are. You know, we want to take care of patients.
23: But with the reliance on non-physicians, there's now a projected surplus of ER doctors in the coming years, and some are going ahead and leaving on their own. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville.
0: This story was produced in partnership with Kaiser Health News and Nashville Public Radio. The state of facilities at historically black colleges and universities, also known as HBCUs, again made headlines in recent weeks. Student protests broke out at Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona, Florida, over unsanitary conditions as well as mold and rat-infested dorms. Adam Harris is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's also the author of The State Must Provide, a narrative history of racial inequality in higher education. And he joins us. Now, welcome to the program.
12: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So I, I feel like we've been here before. Howard University students held protest there in 2021 over poor campus housing conditions. So how big of an issue is this for HBCUs nationwide?
12: Yeah, so there was a report that came out not too long ago from the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. It's a, uh, a group that focuses on historically black colleges that looked at the deferred maintenance on historically black campuses. And, and they said that on average, HBCUs have about $81 million in deferred maintenance, but these institutions have been subject Two years of discrimination in funding, whether that's funding from the state or private philanthropy.
0: Oftentimes when these issues come up, people will go, well, why don't their alumni just give them some money? Why are they having these problems?
12: Interestingly, I think that typified um, a sort of misunderstanding about black colleges that the, the reason why they don't have the nicer things or that they have the maintenance issues is because of financial mismanagement. It's because their alumni don't give. And, and some of that, of course, stems from the way that the institutions have historically been covered, right? Only going to HBCUs when there are issues or when bad things happen. And some of it is simply people being misinformed about the way that colleges are structured, right? A lot of colleges have issues with alumni giving. And, and In fact, black alumni typically percentage-wise give more Mm -hmm. than other races.
15: Well, let's let's
0: get into that. Like, are they still being underfunded, even if they're a state school?
12: There are a couple of different classifications of HBCUs, even within the state schools, right? So you have the land grant institutions that, for years, have been supposed to receive a match from from the federal government that they would receive from this federal land grant that was established in 1890, and several institutions have not been receiving that match of land grant funds. You know, a recent investigation by Forbes showed that there were more than 10 billion dollars in outstanding funds that. Were owed to a black land grant institution.
0: Don't some states have like performance based funding where if you have better graduation rates or if you have you know more students, you receive more money. But then if you are an HBCU and you've already been discriminated against, then <laughs> you're not getting as much money because you're not performing as well, quote unquote.
12: Yeah, states sometimes will build in factors, things like, you know, six-year graduation rate. I I think about a state like Kentucky, uh, right? In the 1940s, uh, President Harry Truman called together a group of people to put together a report on um, higher education for American democracy. And they found that Kentucky discriminated against its black students and its black colleges at a rate that was sort of astronomical compared to the rest of the country, 42 to 1 funding for white students in white colleges compared to black students in black colleges, You push that out into today, where just recently in the last couple of years, you've had lawmakers who said, well, if if Kentucky State can't manage its funds, the historically black college in, in Frankfurt, then maybe they should close. Maybe this shouldn't be an institution anymore. But that's almost like penalizing somebody who you just robbed.
0: And and you've talked about this a little bit, but I I really would love to make it plain the the role that these historically black colleges play in African-American life. I'm a graduate of Howard University. I'm a product of that school. Both of my siblings, my mama, everybody. We went to HBCUs in North Carolina where there are so many of them. Um, So can you talk about the role that they play?
12: Yeah. So HBCUs, of course, are institutions that were founded predominantly after the Civil War to educate Black students who had been shut out from the rest of higher education. Um, it received its official designation as HBCUs in, in the 1960s. But even today, they are still doing an outsized share of work in producing educators, in producing STEM graduates, in producing Black doctors and uh, and PhDs. So these are still institutions that are providing a vital service and deserve to be celebrated for, for the service that they provide and provide them with the funds that they have so long withheld from them.
0: So, I mean, is that the remedy and is there the the political will to do something about this funding?
12: Over the last couple of years, you have seen several states, thanks to lawsuits in some cases, start to own up to to part of the role that they've played. So I, I think that states are now realizing that They have underfunded these institutions. There needs to be some recourse for that. Uh, The question is whether they will sort of do the stopgap measure to to sort of uh, appease the institutions for for a small bit of time or whether they will actually owe up to what uh, they actually owe the institutions.
0: That's journalist Adam Harris, author of The State Must Provide, Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Valentine's Day is nearly here. And you know what that means. Cupid is drawing his bow. If you're thinking of relying on the cliches, flowers, maybe a candlelit dinner out, our next guest is here to remind you that you can shake up that old, musty, dusty Valentine's Day routine. Bridget Early is a freelance journalist. She joins us now. Welcome to the program.
21: Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so can you tell us about these alternatives to the heart-shaped box of chocolates or a fancy dinner? Not that we're saying that those things are bad, but what are some things you can do if you feel like that's a little played out?
21: Yeah, so I actually want to throw you a curveball with my first suggestion, Um, a rage room. It's basically an empty room filled with things that you can smash, old electronics, barrels, furniture, anything that you might put in a dumpster otherwise. They give you a hard hat, safety goggles, and a bat or a mallet, and then you just go to town.
0: My only concern would be if you start throwing things at each other.
21: <laughs> I, I hear you there. Um, but, you know, maybe you're working on a big project or you have a teenager who's testing your limits every day. Um, in everyday life, a lot of times it can feel like you're working against each other with these things. Mm-hmm. But I actually think in the rage room, it kind of turns things upside down. And now all of a sudden you're working together and you're just smashing things. <laughs> you can you can let out that rage.
0: So for those who are maybe a little less energetic, they don't want to work their back too much,
21: smashing things. Sure, okay, yeah. So I want you to think back to your teenage years. Like, what would you do on a Friday night? Maybe head to your local mall? This activity is something I actually did with an old boyfriend. We got dressed up, we went to the mall, and we picked out an outfit for one another. Um, We set a spending limit ahead of time. It was a really fun challenge where we just sort of like got excited browsing the racks. Of course, we shared a lot of laughs along the way about like gag type items that actually wasn't our style, but we both walked away with an outfit that we really loved.
0: I like that. So the weather has been a little warmer in some parts of the country. So for couples that like their little outdoorsy, what uh, recommendations do you have for them?
21: I am suggesting painting rocks. There's um, a project called Kindness Rocks, and essentially it challenges you to paint positive sentiments on rocks and then just sort of leave them randomly along a pathway in your neighborhood and when somebody walks by, they might see a rock that says like, keep smiling and it might totally change their day.
0: Yeah. And and so what about those who are like, I don't want to get dressed. I don't want to go out. I just want to have a romantic
21: night in. Like, what do you suggest for them? I suggest hiring a documentary style photographer. There's an app called Shoot and it lets you book 30 minute mini photo sessions with a professional in your area. You can just invite them over, have them take your picture with your partner in the space that you're most comfortable in. You know, I I had a friend who recently did this and she had the photographer just take snapshots of her and her partner eating pizza, snuggling on the couch. And it's really cute.
0: <laughs> and you can get those little interactions with each other. Yeah, not posy posy. What I can take away from all of these suggestions is that
21: it's really about
0: creating memories.
21: You really just want that quality time with your partner or even yourself. I mean, how often do we just sort of sit on the couch next to each other, scrolling on our phones? And so this is really about putting our phones down and connecting with one another. Bridget Early,
0: a freelance journalist, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Imagine sailing alone around the world on a boat smaller than most RVs without GPS. Welcome to the Golden Globe, a grueling and dangerous solo race around the world starting and ending in France. This year's competition began in September and all but four sailors have dropped out. NPR's Scott Newman caught up with the leader, a South African woman now facing one of the hardest parts of the journey.
8: Kirsten Neuschafer, speaking by satellite phone from her 36-foot boat, says she spends a lot of time these days trying to dodge the fierce winds and mountainous seas from unrelenting storms as she nears Cape Horn at the tip of South America.
14: The closer I get to the Horn, the more serious things become, the windier it becomes.
8: She sailed these waters before, as a charter skipper, but then she had access to sophisticated forecast data and electronic charts, Not this time. She's in a unique race that forbids all that. And she doesn't have the luxury of stopping to wait for better weather. It's a challenge the 40-year-old sought out when she set off in the Golden Globe race five months ago, by herself, with the sun and stars to guide her.
14: I really like the retro aspect of sailing by celestial navigation, sailing old school. I've always wanted to, my entire sailing life, know what it would have been like back then when you didn't have all the modern technology.
8: The race itself is a reboot of a now-legendary 1968 competition that resulted in the first-ever solo, non-stop, and unassisted sail around the world. That's no small feat. It's so rare, in fact, that fewer people have done it than have flown into space. Australian sailor Don McIntyre revived the Golden Globe four years ago and oversees this year's race. He says the spirit of that race means, as the Golden Globe's motto says, sailing like it's 1968, no GPS, no radar, no computers, or modern electronics for navigation. It is an absolute extreme mind game that entails,
2: you know, total isolation, you know, physical effort, a certain level of skill and experience and, and sheer guts, you know, and that sets it apart from everything.
8: For the moment, Neuschaffer is at the top of the leaderboard with just four boats still racing, but the attrition rate means the rankings are constantly in flux. British sailor Simon Kerwin led the others for months until his boat was knocked over. The capsize broke critical steering gear and forced him to quit.
10: I have no actual knowledge of what exactly happened because I was asleep at the time. I was obviously hit by a larger than
14: average wave, shall we call it, a huge wave.
8: An even worse fate befell another racer, whose boat suddenly sank in the southern Indian Ocean. Neuschaefer sailed to his rescue, staying at the helm all night to close the 100 miles separating them.
14: One of the most difficult things was actually finding a tiny little life raft bobbing up on the ocean with a three-meter, maybe four-meter swell. It was really difficult. And he could see me, obviously. He could see my sail. I couldn't see him, not for the life of me.
8: Schaefer has had frustrations with broken gear aboard her own boat. But there are also moments of peace. She's been reading a lot. And since no computers mean no iTunes, that means a lot of 80s music on old-school cassette tapes. And after months at sea, she's already dreaming of what she'll do once it's all over.
14: Well, I'll get off and I'll, I'll enjoy feelings farther than beneath my feet. But the first thing I'd like to do is eat ice cream.
8: If her luck holds, Neu Schaefer could have a scoop of French vanilla by early spring. Scott Newman, NPR News.
0: This is NPR News.
6: Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Just ahead after the Sunday Puzzle on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get a report from Ottawa where skating has been called off on the canal that's the world's longest naturally frozen rink because the temperatures have been too warm for the creation of enough ice.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections. With condo common area inspections, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. JBSinspections.com.
17: Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order by noon tomorrow for Valentine's Day delivery of any of our four choices, including a 12-month Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org.
6: No matter which people you're celebrating on Valentine's Day, you do need to meet your deadline. Tomorrow at noon is your last chance to send Winston Flowers from WBUR. So right now, go to WBUR.org to choose your gift. Take care of that while you have a moment, before the day gets away from you and before the complications of Monday morning. That's WBUR.org. Winston Flowers will deliver your gift on Valentine's Day on Tuesday. Choose your gift now at WBUR.org.
24: She was just 15 when she left her family in London to join ISIS. Now at 23, Shamima Begum
23: wants to go home. But why? At times, Shamima Begum genuinely does show remorse. And then at other times, I think she's still trying to really grasp what she was part of.
24: That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News.
23: Today at
3: 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs, for chefs, and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time for the Super Bowl of Brain Teasers, the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's Puzzle Editor of the New York Times and Puzzle Master of Weekend Edition. Good morning, Will.
5: Good morning, Aisha.
0: So, could you please remind us of last week's challenge?
5: Yes, it came from listener Peter Collins of Ann Arbor, Michigan. I said, name a food item you might order at a fast food restaurant. The first, second, and last letters together name another food item. Remove those and the remaining letters spelled backward. Name yet another food item. What foods are these? And the answer is nugget, as in a chicken nugget. Uh, the first, second, and last letter spell nut, and the remaining letters backwards spell egg. Yet another food.
0: Wow. Okay. Um. I mean, I do think that buffalo wings would have been more appropriate for Super Bowl Sunday, but this is <laughs> this good. Is this true. is good. Our puzzle winner this week is Crystal, all of Conroe, Texas. Congratulations, and welcome to the show. thank you so much. I'm so excited. We're so excited to have you here. Uh, How long have you been playing the puzzle?
15: Um, It's been definitely like a year, probably about two years now. I just do it every once in a while whenever
0: I see it come across my news (laughs) feed. So what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle?
15: Um, I have recently learned how to knit and crochet, and I'm also currently learning how to code websites. So I just have a lot of hobbies that I'm just trying to learn how to do. I'm sure that if you have the
0: stamina to crochet and knit and all of that, you are ready to play the puzzle. Am I right? I mean, I hope so. (laughs) You are. You are. Take it away, Will.
5: All right, Crystal, let's knit some words. I'm going to give you clues for two words or phrases. Add the letters A-T consecutively somewhere inside the first word to get the second one. For example, if I said experience again, and aunt or uncle, you would say relive and relative.
11: Oh gosh, okay. <laughs>
5: and here you go. Number one is to play as a guitar and a layer of rock. And the layer of rock, of course, will have AT consecutively somewhere inside it.
11: Okay. Um...
5: If you were playing a, an acoustic guitar, what would you do to the strings?
15: Like strumming?
5: Yeah, strum. Now add AT to get layer of rock.
15: Uh... I don't know.
5: Put the A-T after the R.
0: Yeah, stratum. Stratum. There you go. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay, that's a word I don't use every day. Yeah, that's. this is a little complicated. We're going to get through it, though. We're going to get through it. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate the help.
5: Strum to stratum is correct. <laughs> okay. Number two, the hunter constellation and a grand speech.
11: So, Orion and oration.
5: You got it. To pierce slightly as with a needle, and a saint celebrated on March seventeenth.
11: Prick and Patrick.
5: You got it. Your next one is a Spanish mister, and a certain legislator.
15: Sen- senor and senator.
5: You got it. A piece of furniture to sit in, and a certain allergen. That's a two-word phrase.
11: Is it chair? Is the first one chair? Yes. Okay. And then what was the second clue?
5: A certain allergen, something that would make you cause an allergic reaction in two words. Cat,
11: cat hair. Okay, cat hair.
5: Cat hair makes you sneeze, is correct. At least it does to me. How about uh, comedian Ellen and sinks in quality?
11: Degenerate? Yes. And what was the second clue?
5: Uh, sinks in quality.
11: Degenerates.
5: Degenerates, you got it. Here's your next one organs that smell, and what standing room only means in two words
15: like your nose or your lungs
5: noses noses plural, yeah, insert a t and what standing room only means
15: uh. mm-hmm. no seat, no,
5: yeah, no seat no seats is right. And here's your last one, just in time. This one, you add a-t twice consecutively inside the first word to get the second one. OK. And your first clue is shaped like a dunce cap geometrically. That's a five-letter answer, shaped like a dunce cap geometrically. Insert a-t twice, and you get in an immobile or unresponsive stupor.
12: Cone? Put
5: it in the adjective form.
15: Con- like conical?
5: Like conic, yeah. Now insert A-T twice.
15: Oh. After the first scene? Uh Uh-huh.
0: Catatonic.
5: Catatonic, you got it.
11: Oh, gosh. I should have seen that one.
0: This was like a a master's puzzle. This was like, (laughs) but you did a great job. How do you feel? Oh, I'm so relieved. I'm just glad it
15: wasn't (laughs) anagrams.
0: (laughs) <laughs> well, you did a great job for playing our puzzle today. You'll get a weekend edition lapel pin, as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Crystal, what member station do you listen to?
15: I listen to Houston Public Media.
0: That's Crystal All of Conroe, Texas. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you so much. It's an honor to talk to you guys. Will, what is next week's challenge?
5: Yes, the challenge comes from listener Steve Baggish of Arlington, Massachusetts. Name a popular rock band, one that everyone knows, add a B sound at the end, and phonetically, you'll name a place where you might hear this band play. What band is it? So again, a popular rock band, one that everyone knows, add a B sound, that is uh, the sound of the letter B, at the end, and phonetically, you'll name a place where you might hear this band play. What band is it?
0: When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, February 16th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thanks, Will.
5: Thank you, Aisha.
0: One of Canada's treasured winter traditions is ice skating through downtown Ottawa on the Rideau Canal. Right in the heart of Canada's capital, it's the longest naturally frozen skating rink in the world, or it's supposed to be. This year, it hasn't been cold enough to freeze. North Country Public Radio's Lucy Grindon reports.
16: Some people are still holding out hope that the canal will open for skating this year. Bruce Devine is the senior manager of facilities and programs for Canada's National Capital Commission. He's in charge of the team of workers who get the canal ready for skaters. When it's cold enough, they pour water over the ice that's already on the canal, so it'll freeze and make the ice thicker.
10: We're still uh, we're very
9: positive, you see last week we had uh, minus 40, minus 29, so we water it uh, every evenings and um, so it's we've got some good ice but it's not skatable at the moment.
16: He says he misses skating on the canal.
9: The joy of seeing all these smiles uh, on people's faces enjoying their time and others learning how to skate and it's a great feeling to be out there and, and see the uh, immensity of the ice and how long it is.
16: They're working hard to try to get at least one section of the canal opened up before winter is over. But Devine says the canal usually closes by late February or early March, so time is running out. For now, people have to settle for artificial rinks, like the one on the plaza right outside Ottawa City Hall. Julia Daniel is here, giving her friend Nikita Nineza a lesson.
25: You might want to lean on one foot, and then go out. —
16: Two of their other friends are zooming right behind them. One guy stumbles. He grabs the other guy's arm and… — Oh! — They land right on top of each other. The canal is just steps away. You can see the tops of its walls from the rink. This kind of fun skating action should be happening there. I feel like it's kind of like a Canadian bucket list item, and I came all this way to not do it because it's a record-breaking year. I'm so sad. (laughs) That's Alex Jones. They came all the way from the Northwest Territory for a national climate conference, and one of their friends, who's from Ontario, really sold them on this Canadian dream. Skating along the canal. There's the warming huts, you can buy a beaver tail. I had visions of, you know, double fisting beaver tail in one hand, hot chocolate in the other hand, just skating the full seven and a half kilometers or so of the canal. For the uninitiated, a beaver tail is a flat piece of hot fried dough covered in sugar. Skating the canal was actually one of the planned activities for the climate conference. But the canal didn't freeze enough, as it has every other winter since 1971, when it was opened for skating for the first time. Jones has given up on it this winter. It's not gonna be thick enough, it's not gonna freeze. But at least one part of the Ottawa winter fantasy can still come true. Oh my god. Fried dough, <laughs> right? Oh my god, it's so good. It's where it's at. The beaver tail. We'll always have fried dough. For NPR News, I'm Lucy Grindon in Ottawa.
0: Like many of us during this gloomy time of the year, Alice is sick of the cold and heavy winter clothing. So the little girl turns to a book that helps her escape to warmer tropical worlds. That's the premise of Grace Lynn and Kate Messner's new children's book, Once Upon a Book. It's a look into the imagination of a little girl who discovers the joy of reading and the meaning of home. Co-authors Grace Lynn and Kate Messner join me now. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So first, Kate, like, I understand that there is an interesting story behind your collaboration with Grace. Like, there was a poster that she created, and that brought you guys together?
20: It did. Uh, So Grace was asked to create a poster for Children's Book Week in 2019, and she had created this beautiful piece of art uh, showing a little girl walking along, reading a book, and behind her on like the wallpaper uh, is this beautiful, lush, tropical forest scene with birds that seem as if they might even be reading over her shoulder. And so Grace had posted this beautiful painting in a writer's group that we're both part of and said, hey, I love this painting. I would love to make a whole book about it. Does anybody have an idea? Does anybody want to collaborate? And so I had seen that painting and stopped immediately when I was scrolling through. And I thought, oh, that sounds like fun. So I set aside the book that I was working on at the time and took about 10 minutes in my writer's notebook to come up with the very beginning of a story that I posted. And Grace came back and said, and then keep going. And so this week it came out and we're so excited that it's a book now. Well, you know, it's a beautiful book. I you know, I got
0: my three kids and I read it to them. One thing that really grabbed them was Alice's dress. It changes colors and patterns based on whatever environment she's in. So like when she's in the desert, um, her dress looks like sand. So every page, my kids would be like, oh, look at her dress. (laughs) So (laughs) what story, um, Grace, were you trying to tell with the dress?
25: Uh, That was completely done on purpose. So if you notice, Uh, Before Alice goes into the book, she actually changes from her sweater into this summery dress. And this summery dress is made up of words. But then when she finally goes into the book, the words disappear. And that's because she has actually become part of the book. It's kind of a a visual metaphor of getting lost in a book or becoming a part of a book when you read it. Mm. So that's why when she's actually inside the book, her dress becomes a part of the environment around her.
0: Even as Alice travels to all these different places, she ends up going back to her home, (laughs) the place that she was trying to escape, because every time she went somewhere, there was something wrong. There was something that wasn't quite what she wanted. I mean, what was the thing that she realizes about home in this book?
20: You know, it's interesting. Grace and I have been talking a lot while we were on book tour this week about the driving forces behind our writing. And for me, that driving force has always been curiosity. I write a lot of books about nature and history, and I do a lot of nonfiction. And for Grace, um, she mentioned that writing, her goal is to help kids Find a sense of security and home. And we realized that almost unintentionally, we had created a book that captures both of those mission statements, if you will, because stories do take us away, they transport us. I love how this story captures that sense of exploration and also comes right around to appreciating home. And Grace, was it important to you to have um, the
25: lead character of this story be of Asian descent? Yes. Alice is actually very much based on my own daughter, but you can see from all of my work, I almost always feature Asian or Asian-American characters. Um, And that's really because that's what I really wished when I was younger to see. And so all the books I create are kind of a wish fulfillment. And this is a very literal wish fulfillment. I wish to see myself or somebody that looked like me in a book and here a child that looks like me actually goes into a book and sees herself. What I really love about this book is that this
0: is ultimately a book about loving to read books. Is that what you both
20: want readers, you know, young and old, to take away from your story? I would say so. I mean, to me, this book is a valentine for readers, right? It's that gift of being swept away in a story and actually entering that story, which I think is something that, you know, young readers always dream about. I remember when I was growing up, I just, you know, I would read the books that I loved and I would wish so hard that I could just step right inside. This is really a visual metaphor, the idea that we get lost in stories and what they do for us. Yes, it's a way to show them that a
25: book is such a wonderful way to explore other places, and other lives in, uh, to live another life in a book. But it's a safe place because you can always, when you're done, you close the book and you return home. And that's just what this book does too. Grace Lynn and Kate Messner are the authors of the new children's
0: book, Once Upon a Book. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. This
15: is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Raska. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, cruising the main coast where travelers can experience a lobster bake and explore New England's maritime heritage. Learn more at americancruiselines.com slash NPR. And from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive information sent online may not always be secure. Learn more at lifelock.com slash NPR and from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. Tuesday is Valentine's Day, and tomorrow at noon is your last chance to choose your gift of Winston flowers from WBUR. Go to WBUR.org. By giving a loved one these gorgeous flowers, you'll be making clear just how special they are to you, and you'll also be deepening your connection with WBUR and helping us bring you the journalism you count on. Take a moment now while you're thinking about it so the deadline doesn't get the better of you. Go to WBUR.org.
22: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp, family run for 57 years, with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals. MaplewoodYearRound.com
23: I'm Tom Papa filling in for Peter Sagel. On last week's Wait, Wait, Adam Burke worried about companies increasing productivity by canceling meetings.
8: I
3: used to work in offices, and if they cancel meetings, where am I going to fall asleep?
23: <laughs> we'll keep you awake with our Not My Job guest, Gina Davis, on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR.
3: Tonight at 6 on 90.9 WBUR.
13: I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.